hasn't happened here that I'm aware of yet. Maybe once when I first got here. But I do remember a time when I was at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Fayetteville, North Carolina, when I was preaching and someone texted me during the sermon. And it was like an amen type thing. And, he, and, and the person kept doing it. And I was like, please stop. Please stop doing that. It was distracting me. So good thing is I forgot my home. I forgot my phone at home, all right? Not phone home, not phone home. Not, we're not ET. I forgot my phone at home. So I have Christine, so please don't text Christine, all right? Uh, actually, we put it in airplane mode, so it should be good. But uh, thank you for coming out today, especially if you're a guest with us today. I hope there's an opportunity. Uh, it, was made, uh, to, it came to my attention just before the service that we didn't do a meet the pastors last week like we were supposed to. Uh, I, my, my apologies for that. Um, but uh, after the service, certainly if you're interested in uh, uh, speaking with me, or uh, just please come on down. I, I tend to know the people who are waiting to talk to me. And they either have a look of joy or a look of question. And, uh, but uh, I would love to spend some time talking with you after the service today. Uh, what we just uh, concluded was that the worship uh, in, that, in our act of worship, singing is that part of worship that we tend to come to and, uh, and we take joy. I mean, today was especially joyful. Uh, Christine actually looked it up, or I guess it was on the bottom of the song, that uh, I'll Fly Away was uh, from, what was it, 1932. 1932. Wow, those people knew how to have some fun, all right? Um, and I have my story about the first time I ever heard that song. I was actually in Iraq the first time I ever heard that song. And, uh, and, and we, I just love to sing it, all right? And thank you for those that were clapping. I, enjoyed, I enjoy it very much, and I hope you did as well. But I want us to uh, kind of focus in a little bit as we, as we transition to this part of our worship. Uh, we're going to talk about some, about some pretty serious stuff today, especially right in the beginning. I'm going to challenge you in, in, in a very specific way. Uh, but I want us to all agree that God takes his worship seriously. And if we're going to come here in corporate worship or if we're going to stay at home in the privacy of, of a room in our house and worship, whatever opportunity we take to worship, God takes it very seriously. And so uh, with that in mind, uh, the object of our worship, our worship primarily is focused in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Am I right? Without, without Jesus and what, who he is and what he did, we have nothing really to worship if we're off in some way. So I wanted to start off, we're going to look at this uh, in Matthew 8, uh, 18 through 34, and I wanted to, to begin with this question. Is there more than one Jesus? And everybody said, no, except yes, there are many more. Is there more than one? There are. So just walk through here. But listen, these are serious slides. I am not joking. These, this, these real people, people I know and love, people you know and love, believe what you're going to see on these slides. For Jehovah's Witnesses, the Jesus of the New Testament is the archangel Michael of the Old Testament. Did you know that? All right. Did you know that? For Latter-day Saints, uh, we know them often as Mormons, but the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, its members. Uh, Jesus is a man who became a God like his father became a God. That's very important that you digest what uh, the official teaching of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints teaches. 
And just to make sure I can support this one a little bit more, obviously, this is a quote from their fifth president, uh, Lorenzo Snow. He says, as man now is, flesh and bone, God once was, as God is, spirit, God, divinity, man may become. People believe this with every ounce of their being. The Jesus respected by Muslims is a prophet who predicted the coming of, of Muhammad. Some of these you may know, some of these you may not know, but I, I want to bring you in because these are the people that we are called to shine the light of Jesus Christ to. We are called to live out his gospel, and we are supposed to grow his church and his power. For many, Jesus is a human moral example to follow, but not God the Son. None of these views recognize Jesus as God from eternity past. And I'm wondering, do you? Do you recognize Jesus Christ for who he is as expressed in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alone? What is the correct view of who Jesus is? Where do we go? So obviously we can read the entire Bible and get a view of God. We can read the entire New Testament and get a view of specifically Jesus Christ. Uh, but what I decided to do is just take you to John 1, and we're not going to cover all of it, but it, I think it's essential that if we're going to come here and say we worship Jesus Christ, we know who we're worshiping. In John 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So whenever we see the, the capital W word, it, it's talking about Jesus. We know this from the context of the passage. John is talking about Jesus, and in the beginning, he was there. He is the one who created. So this, this, these verses right here declares the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. There's no getting around that that's the teaching that John is portraying here. The only way this would not say that, as in some uh, uh, altered versions of the Bible, would be to be a text in one, and at least one of the cults, if not multiple of them, they reword this to, to meet their understanding of who Jesus is. But this is the text of Scripture. And going down to verse 14, there's that word, meaning Jesus again. And the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This verse very clearly teaches that Jesus is, he, it, he's a man. It declares his humanity. Jesus must be both God and man, or our gospel is void of any meaning whatsoever. Now, there's more. But we have to understand, when we come to worship, we're not worshiping a moral example. We're worshiping God the Son who came in the flesh. And else, in, in, in the context of John 1, it says, you know, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And my hope is that as we gather here Sunday after Sunday, that you have received Jesus. We'll talk more about that in, in just a moment. Jumping down to verse 29 in John 1, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. This is speaking of John the Baptist, not John the, the writer of, of the gospel, but John the Baptist. The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Wow. That is a statement packed with Old Testament meaning. 
The whole sacrificial system is, is, is enveloped in these words to, to talk about a lamb, uh, for a lamb to be an acceptable sacrifice, it had to be without blemish. It wasn't allowed to have any ailment, any short leg, any, any, anything. It had to be a, a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb, a healthy lamb. This verse teaches the sinlessness of Jesus. Now, uh, just in case anyone's in the room, or I've, I've asked this question multiple times over the last few months. And uh, I am not surprised at the answers I received. There, we live in a world that doesn't understand the personal work of Jesus Christ. They, people don't understand that Jesus had to be without sin in order to be an acceptable substitute on that cross to pay for your sins and for mine. He had to be God. He had to be man. He had to be sinless. That's the Jesus that, that we come to worship. He had to have never experienced sin. Or when he died on that cross, he paid for his own sin, not for ours. But praise God, he is sinless. Verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot in here. We're not, we're not having, hitting every aspect of John 1. But this points to the truth. It points to the truth. It's not necessarily teaching it outright here. But it certainly points to the truth that is developed throughout the New Testament. That salvation is by grace. And when you hear grace, think gift. It's a gift. Not by observing the law of Moses. Right? It's a gift of Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through obeying the law, from doing good deeds or anything of the sort. Everything that could be done to forgive sin happened through Jesus on that cross when he paid the penalty for sins. And we see that grace comes only through Jesus Christ. He's God, he's man, he's sinless, and he is the conveyor of grace. But as many as received him, to them, this is verse 12, uh, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Uh, notice that, that the, we're going to talk about the middle line there in just a second. But notice the emphasis that, that John, the author, puts on this. As many as received him, to those who believe on his name. That's the same group of people. It says, he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. Are you a child of God today? So we see this is a statement. Hopefully you can read it. Hopefully it's big enough. I, I, I'm going to leave this up here for a minute because this is kind of summing up who we're worshiping today. And for you to be a child of God, one must believe in Jesus as the grace-giving, eternal God incarnate man, the God-man, who was sacrificed as the sinless lamb to atone for sin in order to be a child of God. And if you're a child of God, then you're saved from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death, and empowered to live a life now in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's who we come to worship today. It's important that we know this. So is this the Jesus that you believe in? It's not often you start a service with an invitation, all right? But I'm saying we have to know what, who, who Jesus is for us to worship him genuinely. We have to understand who he is so that when we are going to call ourselves a disciple, we know how to follow him. What we believe about Jesus determines how we will follow him. It, it, think about it for a moment. If, if any of those people who are deficient in their view in the person and work of Jesus Christ, they're following a, a different Jesus. It's not the same Jesus. They're following a different Jesus, so therefore they're following him the wrong way. So what we believe about Jesus really does determine how we follow him. And what I'm challenging you this morning with is the, is the idea that 
I don't know what you believe about Jesus. I don't know if you fall on one of those slides or maybe you fall into a different view. Maybe you're deficient in your own view of, of Jesus at some point. And what we're hoping is that you will come to know the true Jesus of Scripture and come to faith in him. So throughout the Gospel of Matthew, now we're transitioning into the text, uh, Jesus is shown to have authority over everything and everyone, and this includes his followers, and that's where we're going to be focusing today. But uh, I want you to understand, this idea of authority is huge for, the, for Matthew. He, he weaves it through the entire Gospel and concludes with Matthew 28, uh, uh, um, Matthew 28, uh, 16, I think it is, uh, 16 or 18, I always get that confused, with talking about Jesus has all authority. And that means he has authority over us, his followers. In the first verse of this section, we see, and when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. So people who have authority, they're allowed to give commands. All right? There's, anybody in the military understands this truth. Every parent understands this is what children are supposed to do, right? When we, when we give a command to a child, we would not necessarily call it that, but I told you to go to your room or, uh, you know, whatever, or you'll sit there until you'll eat that last bite. Those are both the ones I heard growing up. Um, but anyone who has authority, we're able to give commands, and they're expected to be followed. But notice the command. It says, he gave a command to depart to the other side. The other side of what? All right, so we have talked about the Sermon on the Mount happening and, and by the Sea of Galilee, but I thought today it would be a little helpful to, to, to see what we're talking about because we're going to see this story unfold on two shores and on the body of, of water we know as the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is not a sea as we would want to picture it. It's a huge lake. And if you've ever been there, it's, it, is, it is very large and it's beautiful, uh, but it is prone to uh, uh, transient weather, uh, sudden weather that we'll see unfold in the text today. But we can see the Sermon on the Mount took place up at Capernaum in that area. And we're going to see that he travels down to Gergesa. Uh, in your translation, it might say Gadarene. I want to apologize to Paul and for all of you that <coughs> I forgot to change the, uh, the version of the scripture reading. Uh, that was probably the ESV because I didn't change it from last week. So he was probably reading the ESV. We're looking at the, the rest of our time. We'll be looking at the New King James. But if you're a little confused, I'm to blame. But either way, we see that this journey is going to take place. And so we're gonna, they're going to go from one place to the other side. So that's the other side is Gergesa. Okay. So I want this morning, I want you to imagine being with Jesus and his disciples on this journey. I think it's important for us to identify with, especially with the disciples, especially if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ. The idea of disciple is a follower, uh, and so we're encouraged to, to follow Jesus, and that's what we're going to be encouraged to do today. So what kind of life did uh, the disciples live as followers of Jesus Christ? And we see it portrayed on the chosen and throughout movies and, and different things. And, and some are well done, some are not. But again, as you imagine yourself in this environment, as you imagine yourself living this, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of life should we expect to live as followers of Jesus Christ in our century? As we're, as we're envisioning ourselves with them in the first century, in the 21st century, it's not a whole lot different when it comes to following Jesus. So what I want to give you today out of, these, out of this uh, passage is five expectations of following Jesus. Right? There's just five expectations. 
and, and they're not rocket science. You know these. Uh, you have probably lived many of them. Uh, more than likely, at some point in time, you'll, you'll experience all of them, but maybe, maybe not everyone at every point. So we see in verse 19, we see it's really a culmination of like four different stories for individuals or groups. It says, then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. This is, again, Jesus coming off the mount. Uh, There's a multitude of people around. He's like, hey, I got to get out of here. Let's go with the disciples. Let's go to the other side. But before they get into the boat, we see a certain scribe. Now, scribes were educated, respected men. Who, they knew the letter of the law, but they didn't always understand the uh, spirit of the law. All right? They didn't always understand that. Uh, but they certainly were important in Jewish society. But I, I have read much on this scribe and much on this passage, and I, I find that people have an insatiable desire to fill in the gaps that we don't see in the text. So I'm going to ask, can we be careful about conclusions we make regarding this man's character or how he responded to Jesus' teaching? Let's just go by what the text says, okay? So it says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. On the surface, that sounds like words I'd want to say to Jesus. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. I think you would want to say the same thing. If you were imagining yourself there, you would say, yeah, that, that's me. I want to go where Jesus goes. And so he, he, he gives this great statement. Now, he does say, teacher, It's not necessarily, I don't think throughout this entire scripture passage that we're looking at, that any of the disciples had a full view of who Jesus is. We know more than they do at this point. And so let's be kind to the scribe. He's saying some wonderful words. Uh, And it says, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's like, well, that's an interesting response, Jesus, all right? Well, we know Jesus is always in the mode of teaching. He's always looking to communicate. So the five, uh, the five expectations of following Jesus from this passage, the first one is that at times following Jesus will be difficult. And that's what basically Jesus is saying to this disciple, this would-be disciple. Uh, we don't know where his faith is and, and what happened to him. Did he follow him? Did he not follow him? We don't know. But at times it will be difficult. Uh, when he says uh, that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, we know that to be true of nature. We take a look at nature, and, and animals have, they make their own homes. But he's basically saying, I'm homeless. I don't have, now I, I thought to myself, I don't know where Mary is living. I don't know where his brothers and sisters are living. Uh, they obviously have a place to, to call home. But Jesus is saying, I don't identify with that. I am I am now in my earthly ministry. I am, I am serving. I am doing the will of God. I am an itinerant preacher. All these different terms to, 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 to describe Jesus. But he's basically saying, listen, I, I'm homeless. I depend on the, on the generosity and the grace of others for my, my food, my lodging, and those things. And the chosen in that series, again, if you haven't seen it, that's why it references very popular nowadays. But I'll say they, they show them in a tent. And the show is disciples intense, and maybe that's the way it was. Maybe that's who he, who he was, uh, how he was uh, existing at that particular time. But he's being very clear here that this particular scribe who, sought, who seeks to be his follower has to understand. He needed to count the cost of following Jesus. Was he going to follow him? We don't know. I hope he did. I hope he meant those words. I'll follow you wherever you go. 
Did he mean wherever you go on the Sea of Galilee? Or did he mean wherever you go for your entire ministry? There's a lot of uh, speculation. But that's okay. We can speculate a little here and a little there. But let's just not throw the guy under the bus, all right? Jesus was saying, I hear your words, but the truth is, are you willing to count the cost? Scribes were uh, educated. They, were, they tended to have property and, and, and respect. But you're not going to get any of that when you're coming with me, is what he's saying. So, first expectation is at times uh, following Jesus will be difficult. The second expectation is that at times it will be inconvenient. Here's another very short story. All right, it says, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. All right, so again, what we see here, Lord, let me go bury my father. Reasonable request. Would you not agree? I know what it means to bury a parent. Uh, many of you have done the same. It's an important aspect of life. And, and for, uh, for in the Jewish community, caring for while they're still alive and providing an appropriate burial after uh, the parents have died, it was expected of them. This was, this was part of living out the law. They were, they were called to live out their, uh, to honor their father and their mother. That this didn't just exist in this life, certainly caring for them to the death. So the, the guy's statement, Lord, listen, I want to follow you too, but first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus responds with, follow me. Right? This is, this, we know this to be true. When he was calling his various disciples, he said these words, and, and this is the essential nature of being a disciple. You're a follower. That's what the word means. Uh, but he goes, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And if we were there and we were hearing it, we would be like, what? Excuse me? What, Jesus? I, I'm sorry. I don't think I heard you. I know you to be a loving, uh, merciful, grace-filled individual. And, and these words are coming across a bit harsh. What are you saying, Jesus? Well, the first expectation makes sense, but this one is difficult to grasp. Did Jesus not allow his disciples to care for their families? Certainly he did. Certainly he did. He's just making another point, and we're going to get to the point in just a moment. But I'm saying, listen, it was part of the culture of that day to do these things. And Jesus is not saying you can never do these things, but he was telling this particular disciple at this particular time that Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. What, what, what does he mean by the dead burying the dead? The spiritually dead bury their physically dead is the accepted, the predominant view of this text. Jesus is saying, listen, there's a, there's a lot of people who aren't following me, and, uh, and you know, let, let them do that. But for you as a disciple, you are called to follow me. So Jesus was making a point. Having authority over his disciples means he must be the priority in their lives at all times. That's the point he's making. Now, I want you to understand, going back to these words, follow me, uh, let the bed, I'm sorry, going back to the, his statement, let me first go and bury my father. The possibility of that text is he's not talking about his dad who has actually died. It was the expected custom to care for them until they died. And, and as a son, he was supposed to do that or he was not going to get his inheritance. Again, filling in the gaps, all kinds of people want to say that this guy was just looking, he was just in it for the money. I actually heard that in a sermon. He's just in it for the money. I don't see that. 
And I'm asking you, let's just, he says, Lord, let me go first bury my father. In other words, I, I want to follow you, Lord, but I, maybe my father's close to death. Maybe, maybe he actually did die already, but he has responsibilities as a son. And Jesus saying those responsibilities are secondary to following me. We're going to see that a little bit more as we go through. This disciple and all disciples, meaning us, after him, must follow Jesus as the priority of life. I think this is, we talk about these various uh, expectations that God has of us, that Jesus has of us as as his disciples. This is one, I said, listen, you know, the the idea is um, at times it will be inconvenient. The reality is when, 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 as a disciple, if God has a moment where he says, no, I've called you for this moment, it doesn't matter what's going on. God is saying, Follow me. Follow my son, Jesus Christ. I skipped a slide. This disciple, uh, disciple um, we must follow Jesus. We should never tell Jesus to wait. I knew I skipped something. We should never tell Jesus to wait. And, and that's basically what this guy was doing. I want to follow you, uh, but wait, Jesus. Is there ever a time? One of the principles that we have, we learned and through a Bible study on parenting was the idea of first-time obedience. I don't know if that's new to some of you. I hope not. But one of the reasons you, uh, you parent a child to first-time obedience is because that's what God expects of his children. He expects first-time obedience. Now, get this. It's a little bit clearer when you say, well, if you, if you tell your child uh, to obey three times, like one, two, now, granted, I'm stepping on toes right now because I know there's a good number of people that probably did this one, right? You are actually teaching them it's okay to disobey twice before they have to obey for real. God doesn't expect that from us. He expects us to obey first time. There, and so we, never, we should never tell Jesus, hey, uh, wait a minute, Jesus, I got this other priority in my life. No, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. So five expectations, the first two, man, at times, it's, it's just downright difficult to, to follow Jesus uh, because of life circumstances. It's definitely inconvenient. I have a priority, but, but God shows up and says, no, this is your priority. At times, it will be frightening. This is where we go into the third story. Uh, and it's an amazing story. It's a little longer than the other ones. And it says, now when they actually got into the boat, they're finally off the shore. They're in the boat. His disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves. So remember, many of these men were fishermen. Not all of them, but many of them. But this is a storm of storms. Okay? I want you to notice the words that are used to describe the event. Suddenly, great Covered, right? So we're supposed to, if you're still imagining yourself on, with his disciples and you're on this boat, suddenly the Sea of Galilee was because of the land and the, and the way the wind, uh, the wind currents went, uh, it, could, it could in a moment turn into a, a, a very, uh, uh, from calm to severe waves as we see here. It says suddenly. And then you had this great tempest. It wasn't just a storm. It was a great storm. And so that the boat was covered. That's the word I want to get in your head right now. Right? A boat on the ocean is covered with what? With water and the waves. This is a fierce storm. 
And we might use other words to describe the context of our fears. And I, I ask you to consider when we, when we talk about, um, going back here, at times following Jesus will be frightening. I, this is where I don't know if every disciple in this room has experienced this yet. But there are times when we are frightened. Maybe not to the degree of the winds and the waves, all right? But we might use some other words. But sudden, suddenness uh, and I'm just going to pick on you for a minute uh, just because you're, you were here and, and everybody got to see you give your testimony. But Anne bravely came up here and gave her testimony of faith in Christ. The majority of you at different times have, have done the same thing. But it is a frightening thing to stand before people and, and give your testimony and to speak publicly. There's many people. She did a great job. But there are many people that, that won't join church because that's a frightening thing. That's one one. It's scary, maybe not frightening, but listen, there are all kinds of things that can happen in our lives where fear comes into play because we are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are following Jesus. I remember as a college student, uh, and uh, I was a brand new Christian. I had been gone to church my entire life, uh, but I was a brand new Christian, and, and there was uh, some, a Christian gathering that was taking place and I was fearful because there was a line being drawn in the sand, and I knew what line side of the line I was supposed to be on. And I'm like, but I was a reserved individual, not like I am today. And 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 so I, but I I stepped over the line to the right side of the line where I needed to be, so that I could identify myself with Christ followers. That's a scary thing, but we're supposed to understand the priority of our life is Jesus Christ, and therefore we overcome our fears. He goes on to say, now when he got into the boat, uh, they followed him. This, this storm came, but he was asleep. I love this picture. All right, I'm a, a very good sleeper. Uh, I literally could lie down. Five minutes after this service, I would lie down. I'd be asleep. I can sleep almost any time, anywhere. I, I was part of a baseball team when I was uh, a child, and uh, my one of the, the coach's wives, I, uh, she was one of the caring, she cared for the team, and I woke up from a nap on the bus in a very odd position, and she said, Greg, I'm fairly convinced you could sleep on a picket fence. And I was like, it's proven true, all right? I'm a sleeper, all right? But here, Jesus is sleeping. I don't think this is a fault of Jesus. I think this is a perfect scenario, all right? This, this contrast between Jesus sleeping and his disciples is supposed to be a stark reality. It's supposed to grab our attention. They are fearing for their lives. We're going to see that in just a second. They're fearing for their lives, but he's asleep. His disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. If they only knew the power of those words. Lord, Hosanna, save us now, right? Lord, save us. We are perishing. And this is a, a real-life, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, object lesson that they're going to they're gonna learn. So even when we are frightened or afraid, we are to remember the priority of Jesus. This takes practice, folks. This takes practice. First of all, we have to learn the truth that remembering the priority of Jesus is essential to our following him. But then we have to practice it day by day by day to where it becomes our nature to do so. We should never tell Jesus to wait, but we should always wait on him in faith. And this is the message that he's telling his disciples in this scenario. 
He says, but he said, why, uh, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Uh, uh, so so I, th I think I might have skipped uh, a little bit here. Um, my slides might be out of order. We'll see how it goes. But we see as, as, uh, as they are experiencing this fearful experience, he, he rebukes the winds and the waves, and there's a great calm. Jesus has been betrayed as one who has all authority. He has authority to heal people, to cast out demons. We're going to see again in the next story. To, to calm the winds and the waves. This is the Jesus that comes on the scene. Jesus is greater than our fears, right? It is, it is a frightening thing to do things in the name of Jesus Christ, but he is greater than our fears, and he, he will uh, sustain us through all these difficult times. So it's, it's, uh, uh, it's difficult, it's inconvenient, it's frightening at times, but notice this is the best part of this whole <laughs> message here. It's awe-inspiring. So as we go through here, uh, go through this text, I think it was probably pretty awe-inspiring to see him calm the winds and the waves. All right? And, and this is where it says, it says, so the men marveled, right? He rose up, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was this great calm. In a moment, in an instant, so the men marveled. We ran into this word with Jesus, remember? Jesus marveled, and he was marveling about, in one situation, the lack of faith, and in two other situations, the expression of faith, the lack of faith in, the, in, the, in some Israelites, the expression of faith in some Gentiles. And here we see these men are marveling at Jesus. And they say, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? So seeing the hand of God at work in our lives will often bring us to a sense of awe. Have you ever been in awe of God? Um, I love to be in awe of God. And when your faith wanes, remember the acts of God. Uh, there are so many times when our weakness is brought on center, uh, center stage, right? You know, we're weak, we, we have doubts, we have fears, we, have, uh, we fall into sin, we, we do these things, and we're like, oh, and, and we're, we're just like, I just, I'm not good enough, or, or God doesn't really love me. We call God into question, and it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, look back on your life. The most awe-inspiring event for me was the fact that I had been taught about Jesus Christ my whole life, but never understood His grace. Amazing grace. We sing about it all the time. God is so gracious that he saves sinners. It's awe-inspiring to see a, a, a child uh, overcome a fear to do something. I, I could share story after story of my own kids' lives or the ki uh, other kids I know where, where they are only doing what they are doing because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and we want to get behind them. We're like, amen, that's what I'm talking about. But it doesn't have to be a child. It could be a, a teenager, a, 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 a regular middle-aged person, an older person, a really old person, whatever it might be. But when we see the hand of God at work, it brings us to a sense of awe. And that's what I think we see in these stories, that, that, that there's these awe-inspiring moments. And certainly being on the, uh, seeing the winds and waves calmed are some of them. But let, when we go on with the text, there's another story. It says, when he had come to the other side to the country, the, uh, the Gergesenes, or Gadarenes, depending on your translation, right? Going back here, here, here we are. It says, when he had come to the other side, to the country of the uh, Gergesenes, 
Uh, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Now, for sake of time, I'm just going to say cross-reference Mark 5 and Luke 8. All right? Write those down. Right? You can go on your text. They're, they're probably referenced in a footnote in your Bible. But Mark 5 and Luke 8 are parallel passages to this one in Matthew 8. And, and it's done. here is the, in the Matthew passage is the only time we're told that there were actually two people that came. And the other ones, it's just a single guy that's focused on. For the purposes of, of Mark and Luke, they were just looking at the one individual. And it's not a problem. It's not a contradiction. Mark and Luke are just saying, listen, for the sake of my argument, what I'm trying to portray in the gospel, my gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm just getting you to look at this one that called himself legion. But in Matthew, we're told that there are two demon-possessed individuals coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Frightening thing to encounter demon possession. I don't know if you ever have. There's only once where I thought I came close. Um, and I won't go into the story because the guy claimed to be a Christian, so I can't, I can't say he was demon possessed. Uh, but he certainly had something uh, mentally going on uh, that was very scary from one moment to the next. And I honestly thought I was going to have my lights punched out. And uh, thankfully there was a guard nearby. And uh, that did not happen. But this nice conversation turned on a dime, and I was fearful in that moment. And uh, so demon possession is not something I have firsthand experience with, but I do know people who have encountered this on the mission field. I've read about it in, in, in books, uh, not fiction books, but nonfiction, just talking about the reality that in our day and age, in our first century, in our, excuse me, first world environment, uh, we're not necessarily uh, going to call it this. We'll probably call it something else. But there is there's definitely this demon possession has not ceased to take place. But here we see these two men were frightening individuals so that no one could pass that way. But Jesus comes to the other side away from the multitudes, and encounters these two. And, 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 and I want you to notice the correct theology of the demons. This is fabulous teaching, all right? They know who Jesus is. The whole point of this section here is for people to have a right view of who Jesus is, to know who they are encountering. It says, and suddenly they cried out, saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Well, there it's... There's one aspect of correct theology that these demons understood. Have you come here to torment us? The ultimate uh, the event of all history will culminate in, in uh, uh, death and hell being cast into the lake of fire where all the demons will be. All right? So that's good theology. That's actually coming. And it says, before the time. These demons know, as we know, that there is a coming judgment it's called Judgment Day, and it's not talking about some movie. It's talking about the judgment of, of Jesus Christ upon all those who failed to come to faith in him. The white throne judgment, where people that do not know Jesus Christ for who he is, they have not come to the right view. Maybe they've worshipped a different Jesus, but they're not worshipping the Jesus. And they will hear, as we, as we learned a few weeks ago, Depart from me, I never knew you. That day is what we're talking about. They cried out, you son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? 
And Jesus says, now a good way off from them was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged Jesus. Notice, they have to beg him. They have to ask his permission because he has all authority. They rec- also, some more good uh, theology here. They recognize Jesus' authority over them, saying, if you cast us out, it's conditional. If you're going to do this thing, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Uh, we're told, I think there's uh, potentially thousands of, of pigs that, that, that uh, get thrown, uh, that the demons go into. But notice, earlier we knew that Jesus was healing people, and he was, it said that he was casting out demons with a word. And here we see it portrayed here. And he said to them, go. That's it. Go. He granted them their desire. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. And again, there's all kinds of explanations of, oh, why did they run down the hill? Why did, why did they, you know, I, I, that's not the point of the story. Jesus is making a very clear claim. He has power, authority over the unseen realm he has power over demons. He has authority over all this. He can say go, and they have no choice but to go. This event most likely brought Jesus' disciples a sense of awe. Could you imagine seeing it? You're imagining yourself with them, right? Can you imagine seeing that happen? You just saw the winds and the waves calm down. And then you just see the violence of, of individuals made calm as the, as the demons left them. And there would be this sense of awe. But the story's not over yet. All right, it says, Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Uh, this, is, this is familiar. I mean, it seems similar to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. One of my favorite chapters uh, and. And uh, I was talking about with a brother in Christ just the other day. Uh, he's going to be doing some teaching on this eventually. And, and uh, it's one of my favorite chapters. And if you remember that Samaritan woman at the well, remember she came out later in the day, right? She came out, and not when everybody else was getting water, she came out because she was a, a woman of ill repute. She had a history, right? She had some baggage, and people knew her baggage, and she wasn't popular. And she comes out, and, and Jesus, uh, before she got there, Jesus sent the disciples away to get some food and, uh, and so while they were gone, she shows up, and he says, hey, can you give me a drink? And she was like, who are you asking me for a drink? You know you'd probably become unclean by taking a drink at my hand. And they have this whole, that, that's paraphrased, right? They have whole, this whole discussion. But remember what happened. She was so overwhelmed by, what she was in, by her encounter with Jesus, so she went to her town. And she told everybody, come, listen to this man. This man just told me about my entire life. And so they went out, and they got to know Jesus. And Well, Jesus went to their town, and, and they got to know him. And they're like, now we believe, not because you told us, but because we've heard it for ourselves. So that's the John 4 story. People encountering Jesus usually tell other people about their encounter when it's miraculous like these things have been. But where we look at the, 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 the account in John 4, it's so much different than the account in Matthew 8. The response of the townspeople was exactly opposite. It says in verse 34, And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Can you imagine that? The Son of God, who demonstrated his power beyond dispute, and it frightened these people to the point where they were like, Will you please 
depart. I don't think it's by accident that we hear that word. They're asking the one who will someday say, depart from me, I never knew you. They're asking him to depart. So that's the fifth expectation. At times, following Jesus will be met with rejection. Have you experienced that? I hate to end on a, on a, on a sad note, but this is the reality. That we're not just a, good, a feel-good you know, sermon time, right? This is, this is harsh reality. People reject Jesus Christ. And, and, and I, I'm trying to think of, oh, I do have the Luke 10 passage. When, and when they're, and sometimes we feel like they're rejecting us, but Jesus says in Luke 10, he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you, speaking of his disciples, rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him, speaking of the Father who sent me. Rejection is something Jesus understood. He, the disciples, uh, his disciples understood. But ultimately, it's like even going back to the, the account uh, in, in uh, Samuel, in 1 Samuel, where, where Samuel comes and he's talking to the Israelites and they're like, we want a king over us. And he was like, all right, I'll go to God. And he goes to God and, 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 and God tells Samuel, listen, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Mankind has a history of rejecting God and it's portrayed now by a rejection of Jesus Christ, his son. And so as we talk about the life of a follower of Jesus, the, the, the life is literally full of, of, of joy, seeing God and being awed by his works, and it's full of sorrows. Those times when we're rejected and, and we see others walk away from the faith. At every moment in life, Jesus is your priority, and he's my report, priority. And, and the simple words are, follow him. He says, follow me. He tells the disciples, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. We own those words. And we say, I want to be a fisher of men. I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, all these expectations are possible. And there, and there, there are more expectations that, that we'll probably encounter along the way. But as we just look at this passage, I'm wondering, do you find yourself this morning desiring to follow the Jesus of the Bible? Are you willing to count the cost? Am I willing to count the cost? This isn't me preaching at you. This is me preaching at all of us. Are we willing to count the cost? Are we willing to trust God in our fears? Are we willing to allow God to do what only God can do and, and at times bring us into awe? Are we willing to face the rejection of our loved ones? Because all these things were true for his disciples, so they're going to be true for us. It doesn't matter, though, because at every moment in life, we don't get to compartmentalize our lives. At every moment, Jesus is supposed to be our priority. And I hope that's something that you will take, and as we go to prayer, that you'll talk to God about. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and for the challenge it is to us. These marvelous stories, Lord, we can, we can sit there and, be, and, and marvel at, at your wisdom and, as, at your, and your power, and we can marvel at all these things. But, Father, all these stories are just trying to communicate a very clear question. What do we believe about Jesus Christ? Do we believe he's the God-man? Do we believe that he has redeemed our sin? Do we believe that he has purpose for our life? Do we believe that, that he is coming again? Because what we believe will determine how we follow. And Father, if there's, any, Father, if there's anyone here today that is sorrowful about the way they're following Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in their heart right now to help them understand 
It's not too late. It's not too late to follow Jesus in faith. It's not too late to overcome the fears. It's not too late to trust. It's not too late to to believe your promises. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you how it's changed our lives for for those who've come to faith. Father, I pray we'd live out that faith every day as described in this text. Father, I also pray for those that, that might be the ones who are in the, in, the, in the moment right now rejecting Jesus Christ. May it not be so, Father. Break their hearts. Draw them to yourself. Help them understand there is no life outside of Jesus Christ. For those that we love, Father, we pray that you would draw them to yourself. The people who believed all the, uh, the, all the erring views of Jesus, Lord, we pray that you would make yourself known to them through us or through someone else. But Father, we come here to worship you today and we worship you through a relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that today's worship was acceptable to you and that you did receive glory and honor from your children. And we thank you for your wonderful grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.